Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast, returning to you after a slightly longer break uh, than normal, uh, but hopefully you'll consider it worth the wait. We've been working very hard to get some excellent new guests in the weeks and months ahead. And this week's guest is no exception. Uh, we're speaking today to Kate Fall, who is now in the House of Lords as Baroness Fall, who was David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff in Number 10 Downing Street throughout his premiership between 2010 and 2016, but had in fact known him for much longer. They met at Oxford. She helped him on his first parliamentary campaign in uh, 2001. And she was, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, uh, the linchpin or certainly a very core member of what became known as the Notting Hill set around David Cameron during his time as leader. And many of the key people who played a role during the Cameron years had met one another, not in fact um, at Oxford, but in, in fact during their time working for the Conservative Party in the Conservative Research Department. Um, and Kate certainly fits that description. She began working for the Conservatives uh, in the mid-90s when uh, John Major was Prime Minister and saw the transition from power into opposition and worked uh, under William Hague uh, in the Conservative Research Department uh, on European policy. And then when David Cameron stood for the leadership, uh, she became a core member of his uh, leadership team and helped him run the successful leadership campaign. And then, of course, stayed with him throughout his time in opposition and then into government. Um, she's written a book about her experience, which I highly recommend. It's called The Gatekeeper, Life at the Heart of Number 10. Um, and it uh, goes through a lot of the drama of the very eventful time that David Cameron was leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. But like most of these books that focus on people who have been in power, uh, the period on opposition is almost a prelude to what comes next. And I think that reflects how opposition is generally seen by people. The part in opposition is the sort of purgatory as you're waiting to take power. And she says, in fact, in the book, uh, and I quote, the truth is that in opposition, you have only the promise of change. You have no country to run, no real power. At most, you have the power to influence. You're only as good as your last soundbite at the mercy of events you largely have no control of, working against a machine of government that is much bigger and stronger than you. You have to be agile and make the most of opportunities as they arise. So that's quite a good description of the frustrations that people in opposition often find themselves having to contend with but also hints at some of the advantages that you have uh, as being a more nimble political operation. So I began by asking Kate whether, in fact, the advantage of opposition for a party is that it does enable them to reintroduce themselves to the electorate, to challenge perceptions and to set out their stall, and that, in fact, for David Cameron, who spent quite a long time in opposition, nearly five years before he became Prime Minister, that actually opposition is a quite important part of the preparation for becoming a successful government. Definitely. I mean, so much of what you say is important. And I, I think our opposition years were incredibly important for us. I mean, first of all, you know, the, those opposition years gave us time to talk to the electorate, to say, to set out our stall, to say what we were about, to form close, trustworthy relationships, which put us in good stead, for government, to, to fix an agenda, um, and to, to start some good practices, which we also brought into government. Some of the meeting structures, which help create, I hope, an efficient and sort of decent government. Um, trust, which I think is a 
key to a good management of number 10, meaning you can shut the door, have a conversation, have an argument with people, not read about it in, in the newspaper on the weekend, incredibly important. But also just, you know, we had, we had lost an election three times in a row. We had been out of government for years. And David Cameron in opposition was trying to form a new conservatism, you know, the, the progressive, compassionate conservatism he put forward. He tried to get people to talk less about, you know, migration, Europe, talk more about issues he felt at the time mattered more, life chances, that whole agenda. Um, but of course, um, the best plans, lay plans, <laughs> don't always work out as we know, because at, coming into halfway through our time in opposition, that, that whole sort of early Cameroon life chances agenda got blown out of the water um, by, by the financial crisis. And again, that's, that speaks well to what you were saying, which is we're not really in control of events, even in government, but especially in opposition. Um, and of course, we found ourselves having to, you know, take a different tack, if you like, from what we, the first door we set out to, to being responding and setting out what became later Plan A, which was, you know, the fiscal um, recovery plan. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll get on to some of the, the detail of those years um, in a moment, but I, I want to first of all take you back to how you got involved in the first place. And um, you um, joined the Conservative Research Department at the Central Office um, in the, the mid-90s um, when the Conservatives were still in power. Uh, in the sort of dying days of the the major government, um, and in a, in a in a sense, sort of opposing a an opposition that was on the rise um, with um, New Labour and, and and Tony Blair, and I I wondered how much of a formative experience that was, particularly given that so many of the people who were later to to play a role in in the Cameron years and uh, your your colleagues around you were also either around at that time or had been in in the research department. Um, during those years. Did you think that was a, a sort of formative experience? Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, I always think of that time at the research department as a bit like being at the Kennedy School um, and having a job at the same time, like I sort of pay, because you learn, I mean, it is like doing a postgrad in politics. You learn a huge amount about policy, about politics, but, but, but also, of course, those friendships. I mean, people often said, you know, we were... A clique, the, the Cameron set were clique from Oxford. We all read PPE, but actually, we we met each other really at Conservative Research Department. You know, Steve Hilton and and and, and George Osborne and myself, and then at, at one point there was sort of Rachel Whetstone um, and and so many others, Ed Llewellyn. Um, and what did we learn? I mean, it was an extraordinary time. I came to Research Department two years before that election where it definitely did feel like those end years, having been in government a long time, we were running out of steam, you know, there was all the, the, the um, sleaze. And here you had Blair, who just did feel that all the political momentum was with him. And you just sort of looked at this person who, who was, you know, whatever you say about him, a great communicator. And you just knew you were, you know, you, it was hard to sort of beat. So we knew we were sort of coming to an end, I think. Mm. And I, I was wondering as well, how influential you think that um, seeing that experience of uh, Tony Blair and New Labour, as you say, somebody who you know, was a great communicator, somebody who um, 
uh, reformed his party and uh, was quite clearly a, a new and different type of leader. Um, I wonder how influential you think that that was on what later became Team Cameron, um, because it's often been asserted that there was this almost direct or conscious um, copying of the sort of New Labour playbook. Do, do you think that New Labour in that sense did have a, a direct impact on, on how David Cameron and, and the team uh, that you were part of then tried to reform and modernise the Conservative Party? I mean, I think it was slightly overplayed, but obviously there were, you know, there were strong comparisons. I mean, for a start, you know, Blair come in after a period where the Tory party had dominated for a long time. He he very self-consciously changed his party and did that in a very overt way. Um, and I think, you know, that was that was it. David similarly came in and said, you know, we need to change. We need to stop talking to ourselves and talk to the country. And there were, I mean, I think Steve Hilton was, if amongst all of us at that time, more conscious of, and in a way more um, a pupil of um, what happened during that time. And some of the stuff we did around Vote Blue, Turn Green, you know, and um, famous trips to the Arctic and that sort of thing. It was, it was, self-consciously in a, in a way imitating um, that. But also I think the other um, important thing was one, I think David has always been a good communicator and was naturally good on television. Um, and we were, our, our coalition, our strategy to win, if you like, the coalition that we were after was a centrist coalition. Um, if you like, very different from the one that Boris has put together to win the last election, it, which is fascinating in itself. So from that point of view, too, there was a political alignment in the sense that we were both centrists. And just to stick with the sort of new Labour years for, for a moment, um, you were obviously there in CRD during the transition from um, government into opposition. And that's always a, a painful time for any party to, to make that that, that shift. Um but for, for the people who are working as political advisors, it, it can, in some odd ways, provide more of an opportunity because you're, you're that much um, closer to the, the shadow ministers in a way that you, you wouldn't be if you were um, advising them in, in government. Um, I just wondered, how, how did you find that, that transition into opposition at that time? Um, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, you know, you've lost and losing is painful and emotional. Uh, I was I was at the old central office building in Smith Square the night um, that we lost that election. I, I was everybody was sort of crying and drunk and we were watching you know, Michael Portillo lose his seat with great dignity and the majors then came and gave a speech in that big old hall that we had there and um, the staircase there. Um, so, you know, very emotional. I, I remember that thing of, you know, having stayed up all night and coming back in a taxi, hearing, you know, the dawn of the Blair age. Um, so, yes, I mean, that's the first thing. You, and also just a lot of MPs lost their seats. You know, you, the Parliament, when it, we sat, you just saw this mass of red, you know. Um, so there's that sort of, in a way, the physical symbol of losing power by the, the reduction in head. Another thing, of course, was the Blair Babes. I mean, just massive amount of new women Labour MPs, I think 101 or something incredible. And we had 13, maybe. Um, so again, that just, we were miles apart. 
but what you say is interesting too as as a sort of young 20 something researcher conservative research department your life suddenly in a way becomes more interesting because there's no government officials there's no spads there's no officials it's just you and Michael Howard I mean Michael Howard became the shadow foreign secretary and as I was on the foreign desk doing Europe um, I suddenly you know saw Michael Howard every day and you know before then you'd have to go through a mass of people to see anybody that senior um, so yes you're right you're suddenly you know much smaller teams you're briefing all the shadow ministers you're in their offices and from that point of view, um, you have, in a way, you're, you're, you make more impact and have more um, direct power to those people. Although, obviously, overall, you have less power because you're out of power. And um, you were on the um, foreign affairs team. Um, I think you said you were on the, uh, the Europe brief for most of your time. But um, were you the only person doing uh, foreign affairs? So um, I was on the foreign affairs um, brief, but I was Europe and there were other people doing the sort of rest of the world, if you like. And I continued that until um, briefly at the end, I held health and was head of the home affairs section. But my, my memory mostly of those days was my start of my life in toy politics on the Europe question. Um, and I seem to have sort of carried on that legacy for most of my sort of political career until now. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting bookend, isn't it, to your, your time beginning on sort of the Europe um, issue and uh, playing such a part at, at the end as well. Um, I just wondered, um, in those sort of early years of the, the Hague leadership, um, clearly, as you say, you're facing this mass of, of Labour MPs on, on the other side of, of, of the Commons. And... In those circumstances, when you've been heavily defeated, it's it's a real challenge for any opposition to to just be heard um, at that time, let alone to actually make any any progress. Um, and um, we, we spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago to um, Tina Stoll about her experience, and of course she's very keen to to stress that William was an exceptional uh, political leader and he had great skills and um, and gifts, but it was just a really difficult job at the time when you're facing that scale of of Labour landslide. And I just wonder whether you, you feel that, you know, it was, was it really a sort of an impossible job at that time for anyone to um, conduct the opposition and to be facing that sort of a, a challenge? I think that's right. I mean, I have a enormous respect for, for, for William, having worked with him closely for many years, but also particularly obviously in opposition government. I mean, I, I think that job was pretty impossible after that, the, the Blair triumph. I think the problem is, and I think you see this throughout all countries after elections and political parties, that the question about you lose an election and then the party regathers and talks itself about what went wrong. And people have a different view as to how to resolve and where to go and how to win back. And that journey takes a party often longer than you think. The, the, the day after you lose, you think, oh, well, here's, here's how to fix it. But someone else has a completely different view. Um, and think after William, that journey just took, you know, really a long time. Um, I don't think that was necessarily William, William's fault himself. I mean, I think that we did then get used to talking to ourselves. And we sort of forgot that the thing that, 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 that the Conservative Party has always been 
a very pragmatic party who understands that it's all very well having debate about what we believe in and our ideology and the rest of it. But you, if you can't put that into practice by being the party of government, there's no point. So there's a pragmatism there and that sometimes we've lost that. And um, I think that was both a re re reality of Blair being so strong, but also a journey that our party took in those years. Um, and you were presumably there um, for the, the 2001 election, although you say in the book that you, you went off to, to help David Cameron. Did you leave CRD at that point? Yes, I did. I, I, I did finally leave CRD and I'd, I'd got married and had had um, my first child. And I had the most wonderful opportunity then, which has actually stayed with me in that Michael Howard, um, it was at the time that George W. Bush had begun to sort of upset the Europeans at the beginning of his administration by saying that America was going to look Pacific and look to Mexico. And I mean, a lot of American presidents say those things sometimes in the beginning and then it sort of shifts. Um, and all the Europeans got sort of quite worried and upset. And Michael Howard, who had strong links with, with America, put together um, something called Atlantic Partnership, which was a bipartisan European sort of alliance or friends of, 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 um, of America. And I was the founding director, um, which, was, which was a brilliant job anyway, but especially for a young mother, because I was able to sort of do it from home and, and work around sort of children's hours and all of that. And so you were doing that sort of in those years, um, sort of after um, William's leadership. So you kind of missed out on um, the IDS years. Um, <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> that was perhaps um, um, a blessing. But I think we we saw then that um, what happens if you don't have um, strong sort of organisation, I suppose, in uh, in the past. I think he suffered from from the fact that there was just a lack of a coherence to his mm. his team. Um, and without sort of dwelling on that, um, once he um, stood down, once the, the, the vote of no confidence um, was passed, Michael Howard was sort of acclaimed yeah. as the, the new leader. And as, presumably as someone who was, was close to, to Michael, you were then um, in the frame to, to, to make a, a comeback, which you, you then did. What was your role for Michael during his 18 months well, as leader? Um, it, was a, it was a fascinating time and I, I really felt privileged to have done that 18 months with Michael. First of all, it gave me an insight into how leaders' offices are, uh, how they operate, how they operate well. And it was a really well-managed operation, that. And Michael Howard, as I said you know, in my book, he wasn't the person to get the Conservative Party re-elected, but he did grab the party at that moment when it looked like it was sort of really going off the rails and it was a very commendable operation. I So I basically did half the week um, still running Atlantic Partnership because Michael was like, oh, I set this up and I didn't want it to, you know, go nowhere. And then I, I looked after foreign affairs and business. So I suddenly found myself actually looking back. I think that was a mad idea. It was, you know, far too much, including with very small children. Um, but, you know, Rachel Wetzlin and Stephen Sherburn were, were running that operation, which they did, you know, really commendably well. And it was um, it was an interesting time. We didn't make massive progress at the polls, but we did. It did contain the situation. Um, and as I said, you know, it was it was a really interesting experience. Hmm. I think one of the phrases that's been used about it is that 
the grown-ups were back in charge. Um, there was a sense that sort of some serious figures had sort of um, joined the the leaders um, team, and you had, as you say, Stephen Sherborne um, and uh, you know Guy Black and Absolutely. and people like that who were were senior figures who who sort of stabilised the the ship. Um, I just want to ask you about sort of the um, the UK US relationship. It's something I've um, I've sort of researched a little bit as this sort of relationship between the leader of the opposition and um, and the US president is one that sort of comes up repeatedly because clearly when you're um, trying to to be heard as as leader of the opposition and demonstrate that you're a credible prime minister, one of the key things that people want to do is to be seen to be taken seriously on the world mm -hmm. stage, and you you can't get more um, more sort of senior than uh, the White House. So there is this always sort of um, clamouring to to be heard at the White House. Famously, Neil Kinnock was in, was sort of rather um, embarrassed by um, his reception um, by Ronald Reagan, which was um, a bit of a setup. Um, and uh, Tony Blair was sort of had the, the red carpet treatment in um, in Clinton's White House before he became prime minister. Um, but there was a slight, slightly different um, relationship um, un under Michael because you had the um, the aftermath of the Iraq War and um, and some of that situation. Um, I think there was an incident in which um, it was brief that the White House had, had said to, um, to to Michael that, you know, don't bother coming. That there was that friction there. Was that difficult? I, I Yeah, I think it was difficult. I mean, as you rightly say, every leader of the opposition wants to have the doors um, opened to the White House. They, they want the picture. Um, and, you know, the White House, you know, watching the polls the same with everyone else. And if the polls don't, if you don't look like you're going to be the next prime minister, the last thing they want to do is sort of mess up the relationship. Um, Michael was, as you know, very focused on Iraq and what had gone wrong with that. Um, but we had the same, in a way, dilemma when I was with David Cameron. I mean, the, Ed Llewellyn being a sort of um, figure of foreign affairs for years was on to this sort of dilemma, do we go America or not, knowing that, of course, so many things could go wrong. And I remember when we finally did get in to see, as leader of the opposition, the president, just the panic of, you know, you, you're, not, you're set up to see the National Security Advisor and it's a brush by in the diary. That in itself is enough to give you a panic attack because what happens if something you know, crisis that day and the bus by falls apart and then do you get the picture? And then just things like how long you're with the president for, it's literally time by the lobby. And so um, I remember, I think David asked about um, the president's sort of sport regime or something, just to <laughs> make sure that, you know, the meeting went on over the, the, the scheduled time, but um, yeah, precarious, it's precarious. Um, and I think that there, there wasn't any um, any meeting. I mean, it was a fairly short amount of time that Michael was was leader. But I, I think no. that during that period, there wasn't no. that um, the opportunity. And I think that the, the, the point was was that the, the way it was presented was, you know, we don't have time enough to do all these foreign ships. He only had 18 months to turn things over. And that was all quite sensitively handled. Mm. And then, as you say, we had the 2005 election, which showed some progress, um, which was not necessarily a given. I think people forget that the state that the party had been in um, during that, that period, it, it's perfectly possible it could have gone backwards. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, um, I mean, I'm always, um, I always try and stress the fact that I think Michael Howard um, 
was um, quite a successful leader in the sense that um, that he was able to sort of stabilize the, the party and um, and and do some of the things that were, were needed at that time. Um, but in the aftermath of that, he, he took quite a, an important decision, as it turned out, which was he tried to um, reform the um, the leadership election rules, uh, which meant that the that had to be done before the the leadership election took place. Um, and so rather than having, as often happens after a conservative um, defeat, uh, a, a rush to elect the new leader in the first sort of month or so after the defeat, it was always going to be a longer process. Um, and I mean, that gave the opportunity for what was essentially an insurgency. Um, how important do you think Michael's role in both promoting David Cameron and George Osborne at that time, um, and also the setting out of the, the, the well, ultimately abandoned plan to, to change the leadership rules? How important was that in, in um, David Cameron's eventual victory? I, I think it was very important. I mean, if we go back to that election, um, following morning, Michael announced that he was stepping down and would and have a leadership election. Um, if I remember correctly, I think the original date was quite soon. I mean, along the traditional lines. And then and then he, he moved it um, to give more time, which meant he had the party conference set up as the sort of beauty pageant to the membership. And it, it, it just gave people time to think what they wanted, you know. And I, I often find these moments in, in the membership of the party really come into their own, you know. They, they actually didn't want a fait accompli. They didn't want the velvet um, revolution of, and much as they probably admire David Davis, and David Davis is, you know, has had an amazing career, they wanted a game changer, you know? And, and when they went to that conference in Blackpool, and they, you know, David made the speech, David Davis made the speech, then David Cameron made the speech, and he, he stood up there, um, you know, come with me, um, and he talked to them without notes, very directly, full of promise. They wanted that. Um, and that would have never happened if Michael had not given that, that, that pause, given the time. Um, and I remember that summer, you know, we, 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 we also did something quite different for a leadership election, um, which was we, instead of sort of tacking right, people used to say, to win a Tory leadership election, what you need to do is sort of move right and, and appeal to the MPs, and then you can sort of tone it down later. Um, actually, what, what we did was different. We, we started giving speeches about what authentically David wanted to do, and that it shifted the polls around him. And the MPs and also the party thought, right, now we have a winner. Um, and it was quite a high-risk strategy, but paid off. Mm. And you were... Um, sort of at the centre of, of that, you've been in Michael Howard's office um, and were um, sort of winding down the office after yes. uh, after the election. And you describe in the book um, how you sort of bumped into David Cameron in Portcullis House. Um, just uh, uh, explain sort of what what how that conversation went and, and sort of where he was at that time. Do you think? Absolutely. Well, I I knew David Cameron um, from Oxford. He was in the year above me. A fellow PPEs, um, but he was. I won't. We weren't, you know, very close friends. Um, but yes, I mean, we were winding down um, the Michael Howard office, and you know, Portcullis House is where, uh, as most people know, all the MPs 
dad, they have offices and there's a canteen there. Most people get their lunch. And I bumped into him there and um, he said, what are you up to? And I'd heard the rumours about him thinking about whether he was he was going to stand. And I was like, oh, have you thought any more about it? Um, and if you do, you know, let me know, because I, I'd be really happy to come and, and help you. I support, you know, I knew David Cameron's sort of political philosophy and I thought that was up my street. Um, and he had, oh, I'll let you know. But he was very sort of coy about, it. oh, well, you know, I'm not sure. And it was actually literally a couple of days after when he rang me up and said, you know, I've decided I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to, you know, make an audacious um, attempt and I'd love you to come and, and help me. And I said to him, well, when, when do you have a mind? And he was like, can you start tomorrow? So um, that I felt, I felt sort of guilty because I thought, Michael Howard, I owed him so much and this had been such an amazing opportunity. But actually, Stephen, um, um, Sherburne and Rachel were trying to sort of, you know, take the office down and make it smaller. So I don't think it was a problem. Mm. And you, you talk about it being an audacious um, uh, attempt. So, I mean, I think people perhaps when you look back on, on history, things seem inevitable um, and you sort of yeah. you, you sort of retrospectively can see the the sort of um, the pathways and just sort of say, well, of course, you know, that's what was going to yeah. happen. I mean, it, it really is the case that at the time um, it was seen as um, as a real outsider bid. And, and, and I wonder whether you had a sense that uh, that, that, that he and um, and the rest of the team were really considering it as as a sort of a dry run in a sense that this was setting out his his stall marking him as you know mm. someone to watch um rather than that this was going to be possible um this time round was was that your sense at that time i think that it that's definitely right i mean actually i'd been offered a job um by george osborne to come and help him as 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 shadow chancellor and um i i i then felt um i said to george osborne um, it sounds like I'm sort of getting too many jobs at this point, but he'd asked me, I forgot that, um, about a week or so before I'd bumped into David. And he said, well, we'll all go and help David with the um, with the campaign and then you can come back and work for me afterwards. So that obviously never happened. But um, yes, it felt like setting out a store. Um, but in a funny way, I mean, maybe this was me being naive. I felt the minute I started, it was more than that because you just looked around and felt it, it, was, it was too much of more of the same. It was like the other candidates were all really impressive and peasy. They'd been in, in around politics, they'd stood many times. They were really, you know, important, great people, but they would, it seemed like they were just singing the same tune and David wasn't. Um, and there was there there was a res it was a response to that it was the game changer, and there was a momentum in our campaign from literally minute one that did I mean that's not to say it all went swimmingly in the election cam leadership campaign we had a sort of it went well to begin with and there was a sort of falter in the middle where all the big guns you know Liam Fox and Ken Clark and all these people came out and we looked like we were going to get squashed. Um, but we threw all our last sort of money and effort at, at, a, at a launch just before the party conference. And suddenly there was, you know, the Mo, as the Americans said, we had the Mo going up to Blackpool. 
Yes, and um, I mean, this is why I have to declare an interest because I was um, in CRD at the time um, in the research department as the um, education advisor. Um, and of course, the shadow education secretary at that time was one David Cameron. Um, so so I, I was in the slightly sort of odd position of almost like the civil service. I was sort of unable to take part in the leadership election itself, but um, mm -hmm. I was I, I sort of saw um, David Cameron quite a lot during that period as um, as my, my boss, essentially. Um, and. I certainly remember him asking me um, whether I knew of anyone who might be able to join um, his campaign team as a, as a researcher and saying quite explicitly, well, it'll, it'll only be for a couple of months until this thing is over. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and, you know, I, I think I suggested a, a couple of names and somebody he spoke to turned him down, which I, um, I, I, I've been very kind in not sort of telling anyone who that was. Um, but um, yeah, so he did have that sense that it was, it, it was a sort of a, an outside bid. And as you say, the momentum then built um, through, the, through the summer and then of course in, into the conference. Um, once um, once he'd, he'd won, it was of course in December, so it was, was quite a long um, leadership election, but I think by the time it went to the party membership, it was, uh, he was then I think the favorite by the time it came down to David Davis and, and him. Um, did you have discussions sort of as, as it looks more likely about what your role would be and how the how the office would be set up? Um, we we just we always knew we were going to get Ed Llewellyn to come back and be chief of staff. In fact, that was something that David said to me right at the beginning, um, which I was thrilled about because I knew Ed and he was he was a more experienced operator than me. And I felt that was a comfortable place for me. To, to be, um, but I remember Ed Llewellyn, I don't think David had actually had the conversation with Ed Llewellyn. So I remember towards the very end of the campaign when we were all ready to go and, and the whole campaign was then I introduced them and I said, and this is Ed Llewellyn and if we win, Ed will be the chief of staff. And Ed went slightly red and was very gracious and didn't say anything, but afterwards he said to me, um, actually David hasn't had that, conversation with you it's, I mean I'm absolutely thrilled but I, I actually have another job and I haven't told my girlfriend yet um so um that was sort of classic David but of course he he he, he did come and and that was great because it meant towards the end of the campaign while I was sort of you know pushing the campaign and making sure it was on course and there was no hubris and last minute mistakes as we know from campaigns which can always be um the killer of a campaign Ed was actually in, in a brilliant, very meticulous Ed fashion, writing notes about how to set up the office and what we would need. And, and also I had had that experience with Michael Howard. So I'd seen Rachel and Stephen put together the office. I knew some of the people in Michael Howard's office who, a few of whom, you know, came over and worked with David um, in the team as well. So it was, it was quite, it was a smooth transition. And that's not always the case. I've, I've looked at various sort of transitions where you've had leaders coming in and, and essentially finding an empty office and uh, and no staff and having to build it from scratch. It did it did feel as though it was a a, a much more natural transition. Um, and as you say, with people who who had sort of had some experience um, before. Um, how important do you think the the role of sort of chief of staff and your your own role as, as deputy chief of staff in terms of of grounding the office and having a professional um sort of operation um there is because as as we touched on earlier part of the failure of ian duncan smith's leadership was the fact that the office was a bit of a shambles um which didn't help um 
I mean, we've spoken to a number of people who've been in, in those in those roles. Um, Tina Stoll, I spoke to um, about her experience un, under William Hague. Um, but just keeping the trains running on time, how important is that to, to sort of mounting a credible opposition? Very important. I mean, you, you have to have a well-managed operation. And as Ed and I, we sat opposite each other for 11 years in the end. And we were very much a team, we sort of boxed and coxed between us. And a lot of the I mean that obviously in number 10 you are helping the prime minister run the country which is a sort of not not a small additional part of the job but in opposition you are running a complicated political campaign you are firefighting you are running a, a good operation you are strategizing so some of the similar um, lessons for number 10 there and it is a complicated job you know you've got policy issues you've got strategize you've got speeches to make you've got to be flight of foot you up against a huge operation which is government and you have to be able to know the government's doing Monday announcements we're going to jump up on Saturday you know and in some ways you're more agile because of course you don't need to push all that policy through cabinet you can you know get up and say what you think but also it, the weight of those years falls very much on the leader of the opposition. People in the country really only relate in many ways to maybe at most one or two people, but mostly the leader. And therefore it's all about your personality, your, personality, your energy, your agility. Um, and, that, and that I think is, you know, that is, that is in a way the strain. And of course, David um, did that for nearly five years. Um, he lost a child when he was leader of the opposition. Um, so, and, you know, like the number 10 role, you also have to keep the relationship strong in shadow cabinet and people have less staff. So you're all, you know, in a way you're closer together. When you go to number 10, what happens, there's a sort of diffusion. While not only do all the officials come in and, and run in a way, you know, parallelly with you in operation, but you also have the shadow cabinet become cabinet and go to these massive, you know, departments with all the people around them. So it, it's very much tighter and in a way more sort of more intimate, I suppose. Mm. And it's interesting you talk about some of the advantages of opposition. I mean, we tend to focus on all the negatives, but as you yeah. say, you can you can get out ahead of the government um, because yeah. you have that agility. I was quite struck by, you mentioned it then, I was quite struck by the section in the book where you said the government doesn't like working on Saturday, so we'd make announcements on a Saturday because we knew we'd, they'd have to sort of struggle to, to get, uh, get a response together. Um, things like that are, are sort of quite, you know, it's kind of guerrilla warfare, isn't it, yeah. in, in, in sort of taking on the government. Um, how important do you think those um, structures and, and relationships um, that were developed during the opposition years were in the transition um, to government? It sounds as though you, you know, you, you, you created a system that worked. And as you say, there are many of the, the same kind of pressures in terms of firefighting, managing colleagues, um, sort of trying to pursue a political strategy. All of those things that you have over sort of a five year period that you're having to do um, and working out an office system that, that works. Um, was that a... a you know, an explicitly um, sort of model for, for how you um, operated then in Downing Street? Well, I think it was a, a model. I think two things. First of all, I think we knew what we were trying to do. So by the time we came into number 10, the, the, the plan A, the, 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 the fiscal rescue plan, which became the glue which bound the coalition, we did have a plan. We knew what we were trying to do also around education and welfare and all sorts of other areas. So we had a plan. Secondly, we, there were a group of people who 
understood what their roles were because everyone has a role in it you know we were sort of Ed and I were sort of CEOs if you like but you're also an advisor to the Prime Minister so you know you need as I said at the beginning the trust here is really crucial because when we hear all these noises which we have done the recent and the infighting and the leaks in the newspaper that is a symbol of a group of people who don't necessarily trust each other and what we're trying to do is to create a sound good basis for good decisions it's really about that good decisions can be better made um in in, in, in amongst people who, who who get each other who trust each other but also you have to make the time and from opposition we invented the you know those meetings which bookended the 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 day. Now I, I know process sounds like a small thing, but it, it's important. You know, 8:30 and 4. I knew the range of issues that come across your day when you're on a job like that. You couldn't get a thousand meetings in diaries to solve the problem. Yet we knew we would always have the Chancellor and the Prime Minister and probably the Chief Whip and the you know Cabinet Secretary and senior um, team in number 10 there and therefore be able to clear a lot of issues. So it helped for the efficiency of government, it helped for good decision-making, it helped to build trust, it helped, you know, relationships, which meant that Ed and I could turn around to David Cameron and say, no, that's a bad idea. <laughs> no, Prime Minister. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and um, we, we talked earlier about the um, the sort of the financial crisis and how that changed the the sort of the mission um, of of the government eventually, but the the initial sort of Cameron project was very much focused on um, sort of society, the big society, and sort of all of those those issues, and explicitly trying to move on from what was seen as perhaps the kind of um, the, the the traditional conservative priorities of sort of the economy and um, and taxation. Um, and bang on about Europe, of course, um, but but sort of the the financial crash sort of forced the issue. So, do you think that there was a um, do you think that there was something of a of a missed opportunity? I mean, what 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 David Cameron presumably thought that he was was going into the leadership and in, into government to do was to reform society, was to sort of look at, at the conservative approach to public services, to to sort of look at some of those ideas of social responsibility and those sorts of things. Um, and whilst those did continue to an extent, it really, as you say, all became about the, the sort of the economic um, situation. Um, do you think that was something that perhaps he might have regretted, um, that, that those issues perhaps got a bit lost? Well, I think in many ways that's right. But I mean, you never know what's going to be handed to you. I mean, one of the ironies of, of, of the, the role is, of course, you know, you come in thinking I'm going to be the life chances prime minister and then you're suddenly remembered by your fiscal policy and then by Europe, which was the very issue he said, let's not, you know, bang on about Europe. And we see that a bit with Boris now, you know, we, you, the minute he won that election, we thought, right, Boris, you know, his legacy is Brexit. And now COVID comes out of less field. So as a prime minister, you have to, of course, deal with the issues in hand. But what I do think, two things. First of all, he did try to push through a reform agenda at the same time. We saw that with the schools, 
the good, the, the, the you know, Michael Gove did a great job with that job, but that was very much a David Cameron, Michael Gove thing. They, you know, as you said, he was shadow education secretary. He had strong views on the schools. Also, we opened up a, a sort of national conversation about welfare, you know, what was fair to the people receiving it, what was fair to the people paying for it. Um, equal marriage, gay marriage, another um, strong reform of which he's very proud, you know, 0.7% standing by the world's poor. So there was a reform agenda. Was it as much as he'd liked? No. And I think, you know, in a, his biggest regret was that he wasn't there to see out those last years where we began, you know, in the gym at Whitney when he won that election, didn't expect to win it in the way that he did in 2015. That was a chance to move back to that early programme, as you said, the sort of live chances. And he, he wanted to get going on that, but he ran out of time. Mm. And you, you mentioned um, sort of Boris Johnson and, um, and obviously we've now had two prime ministers um, who've come into office um, in power, um, that, that who have, yeah. have come in without having... Uh, a period in opposition um, and just to sort of loop back to where I began about sort of the importance of opposition mm -hmm. my sort of existentialist question about sort of why are we all here um, but um, the, the, the reason for studying opposition you know is is to my mind because it is it is so, so important it's it's at least half the political equation um, and and most prime ministers who come in um, and have a, a significant um, sort of effect are those who've come in from opposition. We think of sort of Tony Blair and um, and obviously David Cameron coming in from from uh, from opposition as well. They have had that, that opportunity to ref refine their agenda, to work out what they're going to do, but also just on the skills needed. Um, we've talked about the, um, the sort of the office, but also for the person themselves, mm. being leader of the opposition is a huge role. And it's got, as you say, that almost single focus of anyone in the opposition. Um, and if you've done sort of several years of doing that, it is good practice, essentially. It's good preparation for being prime minister. Do you think that, um, that those who don't have that have, have a problem, that, that they, they haven't had that exposure? Sort of thinking of, of, sort of Theresa May not even having really a leadership election either was cited as something that she hadn't been exposed to that. Um, do you think that that is something which is um, a real advantage if you're coming in having had that experience as leader? Look, definitely. I mean, you that experience teaches you so much. I mean, first of all, being in the limelight to that extent, no, very few ministers, even senior cabinet, are like that. They, they you know, they can be submarines, they can go under. But as prime minister or leader of the opposition, you're in the public eye all the time. You have to react all the time. It's on your shoulders. The relationships that you build up, the way the show operates, it is about you. And then there's a sort of, you know, that there's it's a more co complicated in terms of just political agility. You know, you can't always put out your stall and say, I'm not going to move, because sometimes you have to move. You have to move because you try and fly a political idea and it doesn't work, or you still might think you're right, but to, you, you've lost the coalition to make that land. It is a more complicated job. And anyone who's done that opposition job has done, they haven't run the country, but they've been able to promote and set out their stall. They have the they have the knowledge and the know-how to put themselves forward as a political persona. But also, you know, they are managing a team. And at the end of the day, you know, you have all those people in your cabinet, 
probably half of them want to be prime minister. You you have to be their leader. You have to you have to manage them, and that is something that you learn from opposition. Great. Well, I think that's a, a, a absolutely perfect point at which to end. Um, so thanks very much indeed for for, for joining us, Kate. And um, I will once again um, plug the book, and it's a it's an excellent read. Um, uh, and it's uh, called The Gatekeeper. Uh, I haven't even talked about that role um, as, as being the, the gatekeeper, but I highly recommend that. So thanks very much indeed for so talking to us. Thanks very much for having me. Kate Fall there, bringing our conversation to a close with some interesting reflections on how being leader of the opposition and managing a team can be a useful preparation for aspirant prime ministers. So my thanks to her for joining us on the podcast and that brings us to the end of this episode. We will be back in uh, a few weeks time. I'm never going to be quite exact about when that's going to be just in case we can't meet our promises. Uh, but we have got some excellent guests being lined up and I must thank our research assistant Iman Abdulhaq who's doing fantastic work in lining those up and generally helping to organise the podcast. Uh, so until the next episode thanks very much for tuning in do go back and listen to some of the previous ones if you haven't already please subscribe leave us a fantastic review and do all the wonderful things that you can do to help spread the word and to support the podcast but until then thanks very much for listening look after yourselves and i'll see you soon Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our research assistant is Iman Abzalhaq. Our theme music is by Tom Hector. And you can find us at oppositionstudies.net. Phew! If those credits get any longer, Tom, you're going to need to write us a longer theme. <laughs>